You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news from the 55 UEFA nations and sometimes a little bit beyond. On this episode of The Sweeper, we talk about the Indonesian team taking a tank to the stadium, the Swedish club that have found a loophole in the offside rule, and the biggest away days coming up in the European group phase. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sweeper, where Paul Watson and myself, Lee Wingate, tell all the weird and wonderful global football stories you won't find elsewhere. On this episode, we're covering everything from Sweden to Indonesia and a whole lot in between. But before we get started with the stories, we're going to briefly talk about the sequel to Paul's hit book, Up Pompeii. Can I call it a hit book, Paul? I know British <laughs> people are very modest, aren't we? Um, but it's got a it's got a recommendation from James Corden on the front, so I think I can describe it as a hit book. Weirdly, that actually gets me more detractors than than uh, than oh. positive comments. Yeah, I know it's very weird. There's a weird relationship with Corden in the UK, isn't there? But no, actually, what what I used to say was it's a bestseller, uh, and it was not. But I had a little caveat <laughs> in my mind that was like a little asterisk saying bestseller section football slash Micronesian football. And it definitely is the best-selling Micronesian football book in history. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> well, that's something to be proud of, isn't it? You've also been penning the sequel over the last month, the first installment of Up Pompeii 2, which we released yesterday. This is all about the Twitter DM that set this Micronesian futsal tournament in motion, the challenges football in the country faced in the years after your departure. And I think quite a, interestingly for me as a reader, a, a personal note about a mistake that you made which you know people can read the article we won't go into too much detail about that now but was that a difficult piece for you to write because it seemed like this mistake is something that's that's really stayed with you yeah and it was difficult to write um because it haunted me for at least five years I think about it every day and now only recently it's this has sort of exercised that demon to some degree I don't I don't think about this this thing that I did that that backfired so regularly but but yeah it it was a massive part of my life and when I talk about Pompeii to people um there would obviously be the happiness that and the pride to some degree in in how it all went and I love it when people have read the book but so often people would would really like kindly say oh what happened after the book and honestly for me it was just a painful experience every time someone asked so the nice thing for me is that's no longer the case and this book is this this second uh up Pompeii is basically explaining what this was uh why it hurt so much and then how we've moved past it if you want to read Paul's sequel to up Pompeii up Pompeii 2 it's going to be released in monthly installments and the only place that you'll be able to do so is on our patreon so that's at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod you'll be able to read each monthly installment as it comes out as well as getting our bonus episodes and we've got, I think, 100 patrons now who have signed up supporting the pod. So a big thanks to you and a big thanks to Stephen Allen for becoming number 100 as well. Uh, one of the additional Patreon 
perks is that you can vote for the lead story on each of our episodes and the patrons have have done their job as per usual uh, with 26 percent of people wanting to hear more about the indonesian away team that took a tank to the stadium pool so can you <laughs> shed some light on that so this popped up onto my twitter feed courtesy of um jakarta casual so if you want to follow indonesian football very good account at jakarta casual on uh, what i will always call twitter what was posted was a picture of fans going to the biggest derby game in Indi- Indonesian football. So this is the game between uh, Persia Jakarta and Persib Bandung. And sorry, it wasn't fans going, because fans are in fact banned. So away fans can't travel to this game. It's so fiery. What was posted was actually a picture of the uh, away team traveling to the match. And on this occasion, it was Persib traveling to Jakarta. And they had to travel to the match or to the stadium in an armored tank. Such was the the fear of, right, of violence between uh, fans on the players. And this was a match that rang a bell to me. So I'm no expert on Indonesian football, but I, like a lot of people probably, am a huge fan of James Montague, the writer. I don't know if you've read his work, Lee, but brilliant writer has written some of the best football books I think there are. And he wrote a book about ultras. He wrote a book that um, was called 1312 Among the Ultras. And he goes basically like the crazy man he is. He goes into some of the most passionate fan bases in the world and uh, kind of lives the reality of being in, in, in ultra fan groups. And one of those he went to was Indonesia. And I remember this story he told. He was in a bus with fans of uh, Persia Jakarta. And this bus broke down en route to a game. It wasn't the derby game, but it broke down taking fans to a game. And fans of... Persib, the other, the, the rivals, um, realised this bus had broken down on the motorway, on this like six lane motorway, and were, were basically chasing to try and get to this bus to, you know, possibly kill uh, the people on board. So there's this, this this incredible chapter where, yeah, James Montague writes about the fact that he genuinely thinks he might be about to die on this bus. And I think it really gives you this like insight into how extreme this rivalry is. That like that isn't even the derby. That was just the fact that fans of one of the teams got word that one of the buses had broken down for the fans of the other team. So yeah, when I saw this this derby was on, it, it reminded me again of that book. And it's I totally recommend it to anyone who wants to read it. The game ended one all, but yeah, really it's all about just when you think about the biggest rivalries in world football. And the most passionate and bitter ones. I must admit, I I don't I didn't tend to think of Indonesia, but yeah, it's an absolutely horrible, vicious rivalry. That one. I did actually have a little look for other examples of teams that have taken unusual methods of transport to sort of get in and out of the stadium. I didn't really stumble upon too many. But I did find one which was quite interesting after the 1978 World Cup final, which took place in Argentina between Argentina and the Netherlands. Uh, Ozzy Ardiles escaped the stadium basically via a mixture of emergency services. So he got home from the stadium by hiding in a police car. But he then had to go to, I think it was Hotel Plaza for a, a big reception. So he went to the police station and asked for another lift. He ended up signing some autographs for the convicts, then got into a police car that took him as close as possible to Hotel Plaza, but couldn't get him any closer. So he did the last stretch of the journey in the back of an ambulance. (laughs) That's absolutely amazing. That's a phenomenal story. I remember reading a kind of opposite story that shows how far football's changed, that you remember famously 1950 when uh, Uruguay won the World Cup in Brazil, Mm-hmm. And it was like obviously devastating for Brazil. It was like a, a national tragedy. And I remember reading a story about the Uruguay squad 
basically going into the middle of, of, of a town in Brazil to get a sandwich and just walking around, just going off looking for a sandwich and everywhere was shut because the World Cup final had been on. But they're just this, these normal guys just walking around looking for a sandwich. And I, I think it's, yeah, these are almost like the, it's the way football has gone now. We've got to a point where you can't even, you know, you can't even get a team to a game without armed police. And now it's quite quaint looking back at the old days, I think. It's funny you should say that about the, the the World Cup and sort of in the early years, because I think there was a referee at the 1930 World Cup who was the very first one. Well, first of all, there was in the 1930 World Cup, they got, I think it was the coach of Bolivia to run the line for a game, which I think is just wonderful. Uh, but there was also one referee who I think did have to be smuggled out of that tournament for fear of his own safety. So oh, okay. I, think, I think we probably probably always had this edgy side to football, I think. When I was looking for footballers escaping from stadiums, I accidentally stumbled upon another story because one of the things that I put into Google is footballers in funny disguises getting out of stadiums. And so (laughs) what that took me to was a story that was recently published by The Upshot, which is, uh, well, they describe themselves as being uh, the place where they tackle the stories that BBC Sport wouldn't touch with a barge pole. That's their (laughs) self-description <laughs> so do we but for a different reason yeah. <laughs> one of them was the cover story that Sylvain Distan used um, to the woman that he was having an affair with this was some years ago when he was a Manchester City player but he pretended to her that he was a milkman uh, and I have <laughs> I have absolutely no idea why he did this but yeah, after three years of pretending to this woman he was a milkman, I guess what he wanted was to not give away his superstar status and to have that get out and, and become public knowledge. But three years later, she spotted him on Match of the Day. <laughs> oh, that's um, phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, and so, but he didn't give up. So she, apparently she asked him, she said, look, I've seen you on Match of the Day. But he said that he was the identical twin of Sylvain Distan. <laughs> wow. But wait, so had he never introduced himself as Sylvain? Had he given a fake name to her? Because otherwise he's the identical twin of Sylvain Distan, who was also called Sylvain. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to read more about that, I would recommend the Upshot. I think they're on Twitter as Upshot Towers. Um, some very, very funny threads on there. Our next story is jumping from Asia to Europe, and we're going to Slovenia. And this follows a theme that has been on several of our previous podcasts. That's been presidents, either club or national presidents of some sort, playing football themselves. Uh, And this one comes from Yannick Premrov on Instagram. What is the story, Paul? Well, it seems that president of uh, NK Tabor Sedana, uh, who is Davor Gayants, I think it would be pronounced, scored a goal for for the team. So we got a president scoring a goal, which we always always like that. And it appears that he had to field himself because the team's in real financial dire straits and just didn't have enough players. But when you actually look at look him up, um, I imagine a lot of people will have heard of him. I hadn't heard of him. He's he's a successful Slovenian footballer, and he's only relatively recently retired. He's thirty seven years old. Double so. And, and, you know, he had a you know a steady career. It wasn't a fantastically glorious career, but it was very steady. He played for Olympia Ljubljana for a little while. You know, he, decent enough player. So I imagine it was just a case of him looking around and thinking, oh, God, these lot, you know, I'll just, just play myself. <laughs> and sure enough, he pops up and scores. 
Yeah, Tabor Cezano, I had a little look at the table. They, so they they were relegated. They were the team that were relegated from the Slovenian top flight last season. And now they are already right at the bottom of the second division. Um, I think they're the only team in the league that is still winless after four or five rounds of games. I mean, it, it, it looks like one of those situations. We've talked about them in the context of Italian football, or some of the, the bigger football pyramids, but it looks like a team that is in such dire straits that it's going into free fall, basically. I know he's not that old, but he's obviously, been, I think he's been retired since 2019. So if you're bringing back a, a player that's been retired for four years now, it is it's quite a desperate measure, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a great situation to be in. Um, of course, da- if you do want to check him out, Davor um, Shkejans is on uh, LinkedIn. And so on LinkedIn, what we can see is he's a chief executive officer with a demonstrated history of working in the sports industry, skilled in sports management, sports psychology, player development, athletic sponsorship, marketing and sports. So actually, you're looking at a guy that, looking at that, I don't think they're going to have any problems. But, um I like I just like I like this thing there are a few quite high profile players on LinkedIn and I just think it's a really it always cracks me up a little bit to see them on there uh I don't know why but there's something funny about seeing a footballer on LinkedIn he's got one last thing he can add now can't he he can add uh, being a, a desperate last attempt at preventing a team from getting relegated for the second season in a row so he's got many strings to his bow clearly <laughs> yeah there are many examples of, of presidents that have tried to play football. You've got um, Joseph Portelli, the Hammer and Spartans president, who actually resigned in the hope that he could play a game once they'd become champions last season. I think that was one of the stories on our very first pod we did together, or, or perhaps the second one. We've also talked about Ronnie Brunswick. This is the vice president of Suriname, who is the, the, the vice president of the country, not, not a club. <laughs> yeah. He is at 62 playing for Inter Moenga Tapo. You've also got... Um, I think he is the only head of state worldwide who, who used to have a career as a footballer. That's George Ware, of course, in Liberia. Do we have mm. any more uh, in the category of, of presidents or, or chairman playing football? Do we have any more? I can't think of any off the top of my head. We had, um, of course, we always give a, a little shout out to Uprising FC in Anguilla, um, who are coincidentally sponsored by our um, sponsors, Surprise Shirts, because they have a player president, I believe, who is like 24, 25 years old. So that's an unusual situation, I think. Yeah, if you have any other examples of presidents or heads of state or or whatever it may be playing football, uh, then do let us know at sweeperpod at gmail.com. We've had a few listeners that have got in touch recently, and that's been really nice to hear about the wide range of people across the world who do listen to this podcast. I think we've had listeners now from around 115 different countries, which is which is really great that we've got so many people all over the world interested in, in what's going on a- across world football. So um, some of them uh, we want to give a shout out to today. Uh, one is Colby Phillips, who emailed a few weeks ago. He's moved across country in the USA with his family to be the head women's soccer coach at the University of Maine. He's described his team as sort of the Faroe Islands of women's football in the in the US. So we do wish uh, Colby all the best. Uh, we also got a very funny email from Jamie Sains. And uh, I don't think you've read this one yet, Paul, but I'm going to share this with you. He's a teacher based in Essex in England. And he's explaining in this email that he and a group of fellow teachers use half term to travel often to the Netherlands to watch football matches. That seems to be the sort of the, the place they return to quite a lot. And after the lockdowns had ended in the UK, after the COVID pandemic, they booked a trip to Eindhoven. 
And around two months before the trip, uh, Jamie says that their friend Eglis told them that he had proposed to his girlfriend and was due to get married to her in, uh, or he'd proposed in the Lake District and was due to get married to her on the day of the game they were supposed to be going to. And uh, apparently Eglis got married at midday, kissed his new bride goodbye, went straight to the airport, attended the games with them that very weekend, which is quite something, isn't it? Wow. That is absolutely astonishing. So that was effectively his honeymoon. Yeah, that was the honeymoon without his <laughs> without his bride. Wow, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that did make me laugh when I read that. That is that's quite brazen, and of course, he clearly has a very understanding partner to be able to go on on football weekenders on his wedding day. But if you've got any other stories about where you're listening from, any stories that you think we might be interested in reading out, or just to tell us a little bit about yourself, feel very free to do so at sweeperpod at gmail.com. I think we'll leave it there for part one. We'll be back for part two to talk about some interesting stories from Sweden and some other headlines from France and Austria. Welcome back to part two of the Sweeper podcast, where we're going to be talking about supporter groups and fans throughout this segment, with the exception of the first story, which comes from Sweden and is about a Swedish lower league club called Torns AF and a loophole that they have spotted to the offside rule. Now, this has been on Twitter a little bit. The Guardian also featured a small article about it. Have you seen this, Paul? Have you spotted this? Um, it, I saw it very briefly, but I must admit, I didn't properly sit down. It felt like it was going to need my brain to function in a gear it wasn't in. So, so what, what is this loophole then? I actually thought the same when I was reading this thread. I was like, what does this mean? But the club have handily produced a hilarious video. And it's so funny that I think for the first time on a Sweeper podcast episode, I'm going to include the link to a particular source in the description of the episode so that people can watch it. But they did a very funny demonstration video about what this loophole is. And essentially what it is, is that, well, everybody who's going to know the offside or if you listen to this podcast, it states that an attacking player, when in the opposition half, must have at least two opposition players, including the goalkeeper, between him or her and the opposition goal when a pass is played. But according to the IFAB, which is the the International Football Association board, which makes the rules of the game, the point of the pass is the first point of contact of the play or the touch of the ball. So when you make the pass, it's the moment that it touches your foot, the first moment that it touches your foot for the pass, which means that an attacking player is offside if they are beyond the last defender when the teammate that passes the ball makes contact in the first place. Are you following so far? Yeah, yeah. That sounds pretty much what, yeah, as I imagine. Well, the loophole that Torns have found is that if a player that is passing the ball balances the ball on their foot and stays in contact with the ball at all times, (laughs) the attacking player can then run in behind the defence. They can then lob the ball over the top of the defence and it's not offside. (laughs) Yes, but how many players are capable of that? Yeah, so essentially almost none. It's a very, very unlikely scenario. But I think the point they're trying to demonstrate is that there is a problem with the rule because if the ball does stay in constant contact with your foot and then you lob it over the top, the player is not offside when the passer first contacted the ball. But then we would deem them to be offside when the ball is played. But actually, they're not, according to the IFAB's rules. So that is 
that is the loophole that they found. I feel like this is about as useful as when we touched on Curlon. You remember the Brazilian player could dribble the ball on his forehead like a seal. <laughs> it's about as useful as that. Like in theory, yeah, but you go, you try and find a player who can take advantage of that loophole. I mean, it's brilliant, but uh, I know what they'll be doing in training anyway for the next few months. The club has written on Twitter, we are hoping that the torn pass will become a part of football parlance in parity with the Criff turn and the Penenka penalty, (laughs) (laughs) which is quite ambitious. Um, But they have engaged the IFAB in a series of emails and the IFAB is now considering a rule change. So I think, you know, at first they were probably like, well, this is just never going to happen in a game, but they are considering changing the rules, which are you know, I think it's quite interesting that this has come from the Swedish third tier. And now that IFAB are thinking of changing the international rules of the game. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty brilliant. And again, yeah, I, I love the, uh, I love, I love all of it. But um, yeah, it also shows the IFAB maybe don't have a lot on their plates right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair to say. I've got another story from Sweden, actually. So we had uh, that one about the IFAB. Now we're going to move on to our fan stories. This, I mean, I don't have all that much information, but it did make me chuckle. This is from an AIK Stockholm supporter group. Uh, They have been, I think, involved in a number of collisions with heavy-handed police stewarding their games over the years. I think there was a game, actually, that Celtic played. It was a Europa League playoff tie in Stockholm a few years back where the police were extremely heavy-handed. And I think that they've got a bit of a rep for it there. Um, but but what the AIK supporters group in question have now done is they've released a guide on Twitter <laughs> showing where police can hit them with batons. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And where, where is it? <laughs> exactly. Where would you like to be hit with a baton? They've done like uh, they've broken it up into two parts. So they've done like a visual demonstration. And one part says soft parts. <laughs> now, <laughs> soft parts includes the overarm and the top of the leg. Apparently, they are acceptable places for the police to hit them. The box next to it says hard parts. And uh, (laughs) that is essentially just the head. So they've got this visual demonstration about, you know, where they want to be hit, which I think is both very funny and also quite sad at the same time that (laughs) that that has to happen. But yeah, this this visual demonstration did make me chuckle. I mean, of course, yeah, of course, it comes from something really dreadful and not funny but that's a, a great way of dealing with it again and I think that's it's always nice when someone can find a way to engage people with it because you as you say you laugh and then suddenly you think about why this is happening and you mm-hmm. you can't help but think oh it's pretty awful isn't it really that they they have to do that talking of supporters being hit by stuff we don't usually cover stories from Europe's top five leagues but we do have one from France don't we yeah, we do. And it's from, from the second division. Um, two clubs that probably think they shouldn't be in the second division, but it's uh, Ajaccio from Corsica against Bordeaux. I think this one gets included because of just the the slightly um, weird nature of the violence. So we don't condone the violence in any regard. And see, it's not funny to lob heavy objects at people. We, we don't condone that. But what happened was the Bordeaux fans, the travelling Bordeaux fans, um, basically charged at a group of Ajaccio fans, um, but found there was nowhere to go. So they sort of got kind of hemmed in into a, a kind of area in the lower part of the Ajaccio stand, at which point the Ajaccio fans started raining down objects on them. And amongst those objects, most of what seemed to be thrown down were tables and ladders. And <laughs> it's the ladders. You just don't see ladders yeah. getting thrown. I mean, 
would have been funnier still if they're throwing some snakes as well. But it was mostly yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, re- really like horrible thing. But just the weirdness of just them just thinking, what can we throw at them? There's a ladder over there. And just, oh, yeah, pretty, pretty grim. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I just want to add a bit of context. So if there's any people listening from, you know, countries where snakes and ladders is not a game, <sighs> Paul saying that he wishes that they'd thrown snakes into the crowd there. It's not a gesture of malevolence. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> snakes and ladders is very much a board game that we have in England and, and probably in, in many other countries as well. But just, just yeah, that it's, was it's worth not like I just hate Bordeaux so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I do wonder, like, how fans get into the get this stuff into the stadium. I presume in this case, it must have already been in the stadium. But, you know, I had this when I went down to the, the Austrian Cup final in Klagenfurt in May, where in the second half, so many fireworks were let off that it was, it was not like, you know, you see isolated flares. It was a full-on firework display. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, how do people get all of this stuff into the stadium? And especially the case when it's, yeah, tables and, and ladders. That must, they must have, like, had ultras that that knew that was in the stadium somewhere or i don't know but it's quite bizarre yeah i think they must have just been ripping stuff out of one of the, they must have found a way into one of the rooms in the stadium and just ripping stuff out to throw down at them it was, yeah as you said i think with the pyro stuff there seems to be this like unwritten like a, like this tacit agreement sometimes that everyone knows ultra groups do it it's kind of good for the atmosphere of the game people like to see it but it is banned and so i think there's that thing of you know, there's that famous meme of that uh, terrible security search, you know, where he barely even touches someone, just lets them through. And I think it's kind of like that. I've definitely been in Italian stadia where, yeah, where where all sorts of stuff's getting let off next to you. And I remember when I was walking in, just nobody even taps you down, really, because I think there's an awareness that fans will bring this in. Also, I think ultras have quite a power, don't they, with, with football clubs in certain countries, certainly in Italy and I'm sure across the world. So... I think the ultras are so powerful that actually they outrank the security staff. So if the security staff started taking stuff off the ultras, the ultras would probably make that difficult for the club because the club is so dependent on their support, I think. Yeah, I think so too. We've got one last story in this segment about fans. And this has come from Austria. And it just so happens that I went to this game at the weekend because over the past five years, while I've been making the other Bundesliga podcast all about Austrian football, I've been trying to gradually tick off all of the stadia in the Bundesliga. And there are 12 of those. There are 12 clubs in the Austrian Bundesliga. And I've got down to the last two. And so with my co-host and the producer of this podcast, Tom Midler, I went down to Wolfsburg, which is in Carinthia. It's, the, it's one of the southern states, which is bordering Slovenia. And I went to see them play against Hartberg. And I think I've mentioned Hartberg on this podcast before because they are the team that has the fertility company Pro Fertile as one of their shirt sponsors. And they have a little picture of a sperm on their shirt, which, you know, (laughs) is quite unusual. I think it's fair to say. We also, on the other Bundesliga podcast, we coined something called the Hartberg scale. And what that is, is a scale from zero to 10 about how many shirt sponsors a club has managed to pack onto the front of their jersey. So Hartberg is just unreal. And you have this in quite a lot of Austrian clubs where the there's not very much money. Considering Austria is quite a wealthy country, there's not very much money in Austrian football. And they've literally just got sponsors 
covering the shirt. So Hartberg, I counted yesterday, they've got 11 sponsors on their shirt, just on the front of, of their shirt. And that's not including the, the shorts, the sleeves or anything like that. Um, so they're, they're quite, a, quite an interesting club, quite a lovable club. And one of the things that is, is lovable about them is they have this president called Brigitte Annel. She is, I think, she was the first woman to be the president of an Austrian Bundesliga club. She took over in 2017 and guided this club, which is from a very sleepy little place in the foothills of Styria. Um, she guided them to two consecutive promotions. So they got to the Bundesliga for the first time in their history. They stayed in the Bundesliga on a shoestring budget. They then got into Europe uh, in the qualifiers. This was the the year after the pandemic where, you know, they, all the tyres got made into one leg rather than yeah, two. Yeah, of course. That, that condensed one. And they, they lost to Piast Levice, I think, yeah, in the end. Um, but she's taken them from strength to strength. And one of the great things is she's she's always by the side of the pitch, in the dugout, just going mad, just cheering her team on. She's not like one of these interfering presidents. She's just, everybody loves her. Yeah. And uh, Hartberg had quite a good win at the game I went to at the weekend. They played really well, actually. Um, they won 3-0 away to Wolfsburg. There was a, a lovely chip for the first goal. And so ecstatic was Brigitte Annel with this victory that when the third goal went in, she walked over to the Hartberg fans who were in a stand in the corner of the stadium. And this was... It was so exposed to the sun. It was a boiling hot day. And she just handed, and you may have seen this on, on Twitter, various English language media sites have picked up on it. She handed over three 100 euro notes so that all 50 to 60 away fans could buy themselves a beer. And you know, what, what, in this world where fans are, are quite often forgotten, I just thought it was such a lovely gesture. Yeah, that is really amazing. That's that's really lovely, and and it's rare you hear hear about this kind of president relationship where they're so popular with the fans, but also not sort of hiding themselves away in a in a sort of separate section. So yeah, that that's that's lovely. I I did see that, and I I wondered if she'd actually bought them, how she bought the beers for them. So she just handed the euros through, and they bought the beers. Is that the that's how they did it? Yeah, just handed through to one fan. And I have no idea whether he just pocketed the money or actually bought. <laughs> the drunkest <laughs> fan in history. history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just really nice. I think it could have gone terribly wrong if Wolfsberg had then scored three goals. I guess she didn't want to wait to the, the final whistle and she just wanted to say thank you. Also, on, on the 11th of September is her birthday and she has invited all the fans to the stadium for free beer and drinks. So I think she's just generally a good egg. As you say, these things go a long way, don't they, um, with a fan group? You know, it means a lot to fans to be acknowledged that way. And yeah, there should be more of that, I think. But I suppose that's the difference between having someone who really cares about the community and the club they're in compared to what we're seeing more and more now, which is people buying clubs who are so remote to them that they probably wouldn't even be able to find these clubs on the map a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's true. It is a, a growing phenomenon, isn't it, that people don't tend to I think care about the communities especially in the bigger leagues where it's financially beneficial to, to buy a football club in some of these smaller leagues I still think you do see local people that, that really do care and that is obviously really nice to see I think that will do for our section on fan stories today we'll be back in a second for part three where we'll look at the European group stage draw some of the biggest distances that clubs will have to travel and then do a little roundup of the upcoming international break 
we're very glad to have you here enjoying this podcast about UEFA's 55 lovable leagues. But did you know that we've also got a podcast which covers one of those leagues in particular? It's called The Other Bundesliga and it covers our travels from around the grounds in Austria, where some of the sweeper team are based. Now, why would you listen to a podcast about Austrian football? Well, not only is it a beautiful country to travel around the grounds, but it's also a European top 10 league for now. And in Man City's Erling Haaland, Manchester United's Rasmus Hoyland, Liverpool's Dominic Soboslai, Dortmund's Marcel Sabitzer, FC Bayern's Diot Upamecano, to name a few, you've got players all across Europe's biggest leagues who've come through the brilliant Austrian Bundesliga. You can find the podcast on Twitter or on any podcast platform by searching for The Other Bundesliga. For now, though, on with the sweeper. Welcome back to part three of the Sweeper podcast, and we're going to kick off this third and final segment by talking a little bit about the European group stage draw. We've been following the qualifying rounds closely all summer, and now the draw for the Champions League, Europa League and Conference League has taken place. It will come as no surprise to our listeners that we're going to be primarily focusing on the Europa League and in particular the Conference League, because frankly, that's where it's at. Um, I think we talked a little bit on WhatsApp, didn't we, Paul, about the draw. Could it have been a bit more interesting, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a soft way of saying it. Yeah, it it didn't throw up as many exciting ties as I'd certainly hoped for. So, for example, looking at um, our friends and K.R. Klatsvig, who we've been following you know, from the very beginning of, of European football this year, They've ended up in a group that's, you know, great. It's, there's a lot of interesting clubs in there or, you know, decent clubs in there, but they're not, there's no evocative tie. So they've got, uh, they've got drawn in with Lille, Olympia, Ljubljana and Sloven Bratislava. And you look at it and you think, yeah, it's, they're good clubs and they'll, they'll do well to get any results. But none of those games are the, like, the one that you see and you think, yeah, I've got to be at that. And I guess that's because we were, we had been looking at, oh, would they get Galatasaray, you know, and then maybe they would end up with, with a, I don't know, a biggie in this in this tournament, but I'd say it was a completely fine draw. <laughs> There's very little that jumped out at me immediately anyway. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the good thing about KR Klaxvik's draw is that I've really been wanting to see them. And I think I will be able to get to Bratislava, which is just across the border from Vienna for their game against Slovan. I think Klaxvik also beat Bratislava a few years back. Um, so that might be some kind of revenge game. But yeah, Vienna is only 55 kilometers from Bratislava. They are the second closest capital cities in the world. So it's not just the games in Austria, but the, the games in um, Bratislava that I'll be, be looking to get to as well. So I'm going to try and go to that. That's on match day one. I just wanted to throw a little bit of trivia in for the pod because there might be some people listening now thinking, well, what are the closest capitals? Yeah, I'm thinking exactly that. I'm trying to work it out in my head as you're talking. I've basically shut you off. I'm just <laughs> trying to get the capital cities now. <laughs> Sorry for getting in the way. Well, I, I just want to say it's not Rome and the Vatican because that is a capital inside a capital. So I'm not including those two. But there is in Africa okay. two capital cities that are separated by only three kilometers. What? Mm. What? How is this yeah. possible? Oh, you've really, you've destroyed me because initially I actually went to um, San Marino in Italy and I was like, no, nah, it's not that close, really. Oh, is it the Congos? The two Congos? Paul, that is some absolutely incredible knowledge because it is indeed the two Congos. Ah! It is uh, 
Brazzaville in Congo and Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They are basically just on opposite banks of the Congo River. Oh, there you go. See, again, and I was almost going to say Cyprus and North Cyprus, but that wouldn't count, right? Because technically that's not a recognised nation. So, yeah, I really got bogged down there. I was like, I do know this. There you go. The closest in Europe, aside from uh, the Vatican and... Uh, Rome are indeed Vienna and Bratislava. So I will hopefully see that KO game. I might hope to get to a LASK game against Liverpool as well. They were drawn together in the Europa League. And I think what was quite wholesome about uh, the draw for the Europa League, did you see the LASK reaction from the delegates uh, at the Grimaldi Forum in Monaco when this draw was made? Oh no, did they, did they perhaps not play it cool? They just, they were beaming. They were so happy. And I can understand this a little bit because they drew Manchester United in the knockout stages a few years ago. This was right at the time the pandemic started. And I went to the game and this was at the stage where, because you know that there was an initial outbreak in Italy and it sort of filtered up slowly through Europe and the UK was a couple of weeks behind. So Mm. this was the game, was my final game, like Austria basically shut down at the time of this game. So it it was the first ghost game I went to. And all of the English journalists were coming along and trying to shake everybody's hand. And I was like, well, I'm not sure <laughs> not sure we want to be shaking hands. Um, but that was the game that last fans missed out on because, oh. you know, this was probably their, their game of the century and they couldn't attend. Now they've got Liverpool, so they will have the chance to see their team play against a, a storied giant of the game and also to play in one of football's most famous stadiums. So I think... That's really nice as well. That is really nice. And it's funny is that you see a disparity. There's this, like there's two ends of how people look at a draw. So I definitely saw some people crowing about how Brighton had got a bad draw. But I was looking at it and I was thinking similar for Brighton. They've got an amazing draw. Ajax, Marseille and AEK Athens. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine being a Brighton fan and having those like evocative away days lined up for you? So I think some people look at a draw and they're like, can we get through it? In which case that is quite a difficult draw. But other people, fans, certainly of clubs that maybe don't get as many European outings, must look at a draw and just think, God, it'd be great to get a big team, wouldn't it? Like, you know, you 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 look at what it means to play against like one of the giants and you'll always talk about that, won't you, to your kids, to your grandkids. You'll be like, I was, you know, I went to see us play Ajax away. Uh, whereas you won't necessarily say that with the greatest respect. You won't necessarily say that about like, you know, Servette or Mulder or something. You won't have that same thing for that, so... To continue with the theme of the group stage draw, anyone that follows us on Twitter might have seen that last season we did a thread which calculated the distance that every team travelled in the European group phase. And the total for the 96 clubs in the group stages was 862,402 kilometres, which is more than the distance to the moon and back. So I think if (laughs) if you Google... Uh, distances travelled in quotation marks and sweeper pod on Twitter. You will find that thread from us. Somebody's beaten us to it, though, this season. I saw on Reddit that Sleeping for Koala has posted, or he's basically calculated the distance travelled by every team in the group stages, the closest match, the furthest matches, all this sort of stuff. And uh, as we are, you know, fans of a big away day, I just thought I would mention some of those statistics in this pod now. It's unsurprising, I think, that the Champions League has the shortest distances because it is essentially concentrated in, for the for the vast part, like five big European leagues. And so you don't get mm. these teams on the periphery of Europe that, that make these really big away days. So the closest match 
in any European competition in the group stages is between PSV, Eindhoven and Lens in the Champions League. That's 216 kilometers. And the least distance to travel throughout the entire group stages is Paris Saint-Germain, who will only have to travel 3,681 kilometers. These are distances uh, there and back, uh, of course. It's interesting when you go down to the Conference League because there are some really big distances this year. So the furthest match that will be played in any European competition in the group stage is between Maccabi Tel Aviv of Israel and Breda Blick of Iceland. That's a distance of 5,233.97 kilometers. Um, and that's longer than any distance for a game last season as well. Uh, that is, that's a mammoth journey, isn't it? <laughs> that's crazy. That is absolutely huge. Yeah, Breda Blick are going to have a lot of travel on their hands, aren't they? Because they've also got uh, Zoya Luhansk, haven't they? In U- oh, I suppose they won't be playing in Ukraine, but they'll probably be playing in Poland, mm-hmm. I guess, actually. But yeah, they'll have an awful lot of travel to do Breda Blick because that's where, everywhere they go is a long way from Iceland, yeah. basically. Unless you end up in Scandinavia, you're going a long way. Exactly, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. One of those other countries which has long distances no matter where it goes is Kazakhstan, of course, being on the like the eastern periphery and, and not really European in, in many senses. The longest journey in UEFA history was Benfica versus Astana in 2015 to 16 and 2017 to 18. That was 6,173 kilometers. And Astana are the team that will be traveling the most cumulatively in the group stages of any club it is a mammoth distance to complete all of their games there and back it is 23,786 kilometers which for anyone wondering is about three-fifths of the earth's circumference which is absolutely mad and does raise some very big questions about football's impact on climate change I think it does and and you know it ties into this thing about Kazakhstan so Kazakhstan's a country that um, you can often not think a lot about, I think it's fair to say, as a football fan. But Kazakhstan's national team, obviously, are having a really great qualifying campaign uh, for the Euros. And it's brought up this whole thing that Kazakhstan moved itself from AFC to UEFA. So if it feels weird that they're playing uh, these huge distances, it is a little bit weird. You know, they they probably would fit more into AFC geographically. Obviously, with Israel, there's a political reason why Israel have to play in UEFA. But for uh, Kazakhstan, it's literally, it was a matter of where do we want to be? We want to be in UEFA because the level's higher. It gives more opportunities to make money in Champions League, for example. And and that's where they are. So it does feel weird sometimes. Should we hop on over to the upcoming international break now? While, we, while we're talking about Kazakhstan, they are one of the teams that we are focusing on as, as a, a country that might get to their first ever European championships. They've got uh, games at home to Finland and uh, Northern Ireland over this international break. What do we make of their chances with six games of their qualifying Group H to go? It's this game with Finland is absolutely crucial. So they're both on nine points top of that table, surprisingly. Um, I mean, Kazakhstan, it all pivoted basically on this this turnaround against Denmark where they were dead and buried against Denmark and came back to win. That was kind of the, the the miracle for them. And they've managed to stay on track since. But it's whether they can whether they can get a result against Finland uh, that I think will be the, the, the crucial point now, whether they can do the unheard of and qualify. I think that's one of the biggest ties for them, really. Yeah, I agree. 
at the foot of that group is our favourites, San Marino. They are away to Denmark, which is arguably the most difficult fixture on paper, and at home to Slovenia, who they did only lose to 2-0 in the reverse fixture. It's hard to see anything other than a 131st and 132nd competitive game or game at all without a win, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, and I think um, I think coming into the group stage, as is, it's often quite brutal, it's not like the Nations League where you've got competitive fixtures throughout. Um, they probably, you know, I think we spoke about it, they thought Kazakhstan actually were, were going to be the most likely result for them. And that slightly changed when, you know, saw what Kazakhstan did to Denmark. And as a result of that, it left a group that looked pretty forbidding. I'd say maybe Northern Ireland would be the uh, the team at the moment looking at them. Maybe Northern Ireland would be the team that you think they could shock. Slovenia, I think they can run relatively close. But as we've mentioned before, um, it, it's possible for them to lose 2 and 3-0 in games. It's not it's not that surprising when San Marino lose 2 or 3-0. But it's still a very long way from there to to getting a point, I think. Mm-hmm. Any other minnows that you want to focus on as we look ahead to this international break? I think you have to look at Luxembourg. So Luxembourg have, a, in a way, a tougher task than Kazakhstan if they're going to claw their way up there into, into qualification. Um, but, you know, they've got seven points and and they're playing some brilliant football. It's also not an entirely forbidding group that they're in. They've got Portugal in there. Obviously, it's very tough. Slovakia are a decent side, but... You know, Portugal, Slovakia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, an Iceland team that are not in a good place, and Liechtenstein, who are fast becoming the closest thing to San Marino in Europe. I think, you know, Luxembourg will think this could be the opportunity. I think there's a, a little bit less enthusiasm than than, um, than I thought. There's a lot, I think there's a bit more realism in Luxembourg than, than I realised, because I don't think people are talking about this as this is their chance to qualify necessarily. But it's not completely um, out of the question, I think, at this stage. We've got uh, another couple of teams that could potentially push for an unlikely place at the Euros. We've got the likes of Georgia, Armenia, Moldova even, who had that incredible win against Poland in the June international period. Do you think any of those could realistically push for a place at the 2014 Euro? Well, yeah. And and I think that, again, Armenia are one of the stories of the tournament. I mean, it's not that long ago that Armenia were in real dire straits. And, you know, I think... It, we 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 don't always think about how far they've come, and it's partly because of some of these these talented young players they've got coming through. So Grant Leon Ranos is a really a player to watch. Um, he is at Borussia Mönchengladbach. He was started out in Bayern Munich's reserve squad. He's born in Germany. His dad's from Armenia, and he's only twenty years old and already has four goals, I think, in three games for Armenia. So he started with an absolute bang, and, and I think maybe. You, I don't know, maybe you look at Armenia and think it's, it's going to be a, a campaign too soon. But it isn't that long ago that Armenia were really, to be honest, whipping boys. So they've come a, a really long way. And then also you've got this guy, uh, Edward Spetsian, who um, is being linked with all kinds of, of clubs or has been linked with all kinds of clubs recently. Really seems like Ajax were, were very keen on landing him at the moment, playing for Krasnodar. Um, but yeah, there's a, he's a very exciting like attacking midfielder. So Armenia have suddenly emerged this team with like a huge amount of attacking threat. Perhaps not quite the same level of defensive aptitude, but um, it's been lovely to see them sort of taking on this campaign with this kind of abandon that, that we haven't seen recently. 
perhaps Moldova to finish with, they obviously, as I said, had this amazing result against Poland. They're actually going to be in Austria on, I think it's Saturday, uh, but they are playing in Linz, so I probably won't make it along to that one. Linz is also, incidentally, the stadium that has those beers that fill from the bottom and then leak, so you're in a race against time to <laughs> drink your beer before it leaks all over you. Um, well, that's an intentional thing that they do. No, no, no. It's just this oh, right. <laughs> system that doesn't work properly. Um, oh, <laughs> you said it as if it was like a feature that people no. go for, you know, like, all right, got you. So I probably won't be going to that game. But then after that, they've got the Faroe Islands who are struggling a little bit in this group. Uh, Moldova are only two points off Czechia who lead the, the group. Do you think that there's a realistic chance for them? Uh, or is that just a... You know, was that a freak result last time out? I don't think there is. If I'm honest, I don't. I don't think they. Uh, I don't think they can do it. Um, I, a freak result seems like a really harsh way of putting it, but yeah, to some extent, I, I don't think the three-two over Poland is indicative necessarily of a, a chance for them to to qualify. I hope they prove me wrong, of course. Um, but I think, yeah, the really, really big one, as you say, is is this next one coming up. Is I think basically if Moldova can carry on in the vein that they were against um in that incredible result against Poland then 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 they've got a chance but no I, I don't see it myself I think the Fair Islands as well despite the fact they haven't had the best of campaigns will be a trickier away day than it sounds for Moldova um Faroes are really sort of developing as a as a solid and difficult unit to break down they're defensively pretty shrewd on that day so I would say they may well draw in the Faroes and then that pretty much will, will cut the gap the gap will be just too big between them and, and the top all right well we will be back for our next main episode in a couple of weeks to round up all the international action involving minnows so we'll look back at some of the games we've talked about now then if you want to hear more from us in the meantime then do remember of course that you can get our bonus podcasts which we release in the weeks between our main episodes every Wednesday. On the last one, we talked about quite a wide range of topics, didn't we? We had the pet parrot that escaped in Orkney and inspired a big comeback. We talked about fallen giants of the Champions League and some record scorelines in the domestic cup competitions. So there's all of that, plus Paul's Up Pompeii sequel first instalment available on Patreon right now. Thanks so much to the 100 people that have signed up so far, and we'll catch you for our next episode in two weeks' time.